0: It is true that God has been our help throughout the ages. There are some things that never change. Some of them are good, and and some of them, well, not so much. The theme from my week was this, that families are messy. They're messy. On Tuesday, I went for a walk around church and met a 78-year-old woman who is walking her dog, and she has almost no contact with her adult son because he's addicted to drugs. And... It's been almost 20 years since they talked. I'm just here to encourage you today with stories of happy things. But it's been 20 years. Another friend of mine this week, he's also in his 70s, said, I'm so glad I'm not raising a family today. I'm glad that my kids are grown and there are just so many challenges. And he pointed to social media. Back in the day, you only had to worry about the few bad neighbors or the two or three people in your kid's class, those few bad influences, and now there are thousands, if not millions, in the palms of their hands. He said the social fabric seems to be coming apart at the seams, and higher education and, well, lower education appears to be in deep trouble. Then just last night, I was at a party with a friend, a godly Christian woman, and her first child's going to high school. And it's just so difficult, all the drama. She said, it's just not like it was when I was a kid. It's true that raising a family is hard, but families have always been hard. When families are at their best, they are little communities that create people who are wise and courageous. Families are places that make us wise about God and the ways of the world and families at their best are loving and secure places where we can go and be brave and take risks that's the ideal but we we live in the real world and in the real world families are often the places that teach us the wrong ways to do things they are not the safe places that they should have been families are messy And it's true for us, and it was true for Abram. Last week, when we left Abram, God had promised a blessing. I'm going to give you the family, which is what you wanted most in the world. I'm going to give you a family. And then it was 11 years. 11 years and still no children. Abram and his wife decide, you know what? God's not taking care of his end of that blessing. And so why don't you, Abram, take my servant, is what Sarai says, take my servant and have a child with her. And Abram does that. He has a son named Ishmael. And this was Sarai's idea. She was in on it the whole time. But once that son is here, she gets angry and violent and jealous. So much so when they're finally, Abram and Sarai, were finally able to have their son Isaac, she sends Ishmael and his mother into the wilderness to die. And if God had not intervened, they would have uh, died for lack of water. The next generation of this blessed family, this gift from God wasn't any better. Jacob has two, uh, excuse me, Isaac has two sons, Jacob and Esau. And the scripture says they were fighting in the womb together. They were twins and they, they were fighting since the moment they came out and even before. Have you experienced some sibling rivalry? Well, they experienced it at its fullest. They actually um, fight so much. Jacob, uh, takes two different blessings from Esau, takes two different things, two bits of inheritance from him, and ends up that Esau has plans to murder Jacob. So Jacob has to run for his life, and he runs from his brother and hides for 20 years. 20 years. While Jacob is away, he gets married twice to a set of sisters. He got tricked into marrying the first sister. He didn't like her, didn't want to marry her at all. And then he's... He gets married to the woman he wanted to marry, and so all this time he practices polygamy and has a wife he doesn't even love. Now, as it would happen, God gives that wife that he doesn't even love ten children, ten sons, blesses him, uh, blesses them, and the wife that Jacob loved wasn't able to have kids for year after year after year until one day Joseph is born And then we see Jacob choose a favorite. Now, parents, I'm not an expert on parenting. I have three small kids. No idea how they will turn out. I do not think we're supposed to have favorites, though. I don't think that's how it's supposed to go. I'm getting some some people who would know are shaking their head no good. Uh, uh, Jacob does. And Joseph is his favorite. He dresses Joseph like a king. And Joseph is so young and arrogant and prideful, he makes an enemy of his brother so much so that his brothers make a plan to kill him. When he's 17 years old, his brothers grab him and throw him in a pit and intend for him to die there until they get a better idea. You know what's better than killing your brother is making money off selling him into slavery, and that's what happens. To fast forward through an incredible story, did I mention that this family is kind of messy? Like a little uh, Joseph goes from being a servant in Egypt to being falsely imprisoned then overnight to being second in command of Egypt, only behind Pharaoh and saving thousands and thousands of people during a famine. And at the height of Joseph's power, who comes into his courts but his brothers, who don't recognize him, begging for food. Imagine that moment. If it was our day, we might describe Joseph's life like this. Joseph grew up in a dysfunctional family and at a Um, significant moment in his life experiences great family trauma. Then in an act of injustice, he is imprisoned wrongfully where he is lied to and forgotten about for years. And then overnight, he goes from prisoner to the second most powerful person in the world. Scripture says he's very handsome, and now he's very handsome and very rich and very powerful and very wounded how's this story going to turn out? It almost feels like, I think I've seen this movie before. If it was a podcast, we might turn it into The Rise and Fall of the Family of Jacob. In fact, Genesis 45 starts out just like this. When Joseph could no longer control himself before all of his attendants, he cried out, have everyone leave my presence so there's no one in the room. And he made himself known to his brothers, and he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard and the whole Pharaoh's household heard about it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? And they're not even able to answer him because they are just so terrified. Joseph said to his brothers, Come close to me. And when they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now, do not be distressed. Do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. This is not at all the response they were expecting. For two years now, there had been a famine in the land, and for the next five years, there'll be no plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. And we'll come back to this. But instead of being angry and vengeful, Joseph weeps and said, Have you seen what God has done? God has sent me ahead of you. I am here because God wanted to save your lives. And they live together in Egypt. Jacob comes and lives with his sons and their whole family together in Egypt until 17 years later, Jacob dies. And then this story that we read. Verse 15, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrong things we did to him? Death changes things. Death in a family changes a family. It's been 40 years since they sold their brother into slavery, and that's a long time. But that whole saying that time heals all wounds, well, that's just not true especially not in families. Remember that story I told you about the woman I met this week? It's been 20 years. 20 years. Think about your own life. Think about your own family where there probably are broken relationships between family members. I hope not. I hope that this totally doesn't resonate with you at all. And it's just, you get to be an innocent uh, kind of onlooker on a story. But my guess is you and your own family have experienced broken relationships. There are There has been divorce, there have been kids who are no longer talking to parents, there are children who no longer talk to each other, and time is not healing these wounds. Now maybe in your family, like their family, there was a linchpin, someone holding it together while they're around, everything's okay while mom's around, or grandma, or nana, or in this case, grandpa. As long as grandpa's there, the family's together, but then what happens when he dies? Joseph's brothers fear that. They fear now that this will be their brother's time to get revenge. And so they went and sent word to Joseph saying, Your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you're to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. Did you hear the way they talked to him and said, hey, remember your father? Not our father. Remember your father, the one that you love? Remember him? These are his last words, which are please, please, please forgive your brothers. And it is here that the idea of forgiveness, here in verse 17, the idea of forgiveness is introduced in the story of God. This is the first use of the word forgiveness in the Bible. What can heal this broken family? Broken families don't just start with Abram and his family, it goes all the way back to the first family, Cain and Abel, where Cain kills Abel. And every family since then has been dysfunctional, if not broken and messy. What can, what can heal this broken family? What can heal? And then this answer is presented right here at the book of Genesis. Forgiveness. This is the Hebrew word nesah. Can you say nesah? Nesah. Pastor Bob got it. Can you try it again? Can you say "nasa"? Yeah, it means to lift, to carry, to take away. And that's what it says here. Will you take the weight of the guilt and the shame of your brothers? Will you take that away? Will you carry instead uh, around with you what should have been there, the consequences? Will you take that away? Lift off of them what should have been theirs. Will you take away the consequences of their choices, release them from death? Will you heal? Will you forgive them for God's sake? This fall, we're studying the Old Testament, we're looking for Jesus, and we see him right here. See, Jesus was always part of God's plan, and forgiveness is an indispensable part of God's plan. There is a way to heal the world. There's a way to heal your family and my family and the family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it is forgiveness. Forgiveness can heal families and ultimately can heal us and our relationship to God. Through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, Jesus took the consequences of our choices on himself. He has lifted the consequences off of us and instead in return has given us his life and forgiveness. Weeks ago now, we talked about how God created a world that he loves. God loves this world and he loves you and he wants to heal you and for you to experience life as it was meant to be and the sin and the brokenness in your family and in you, he does not want to get in the way. Forgiveness is how Jesus and the Father and the Holy Spirit are bringing healing to our broken world. Back to the story. When Jesus read this message, or excuse me, Joseph read this message for forgiveness he wept. And the story doesn't say why and we're left to guess. Why is he crying? At some level, it's his last words from his father. He'll never get a message from his father again. And that would be enough. That'd be enough to cry. But maybe it's because he had unforgiveness in his heart. He had no intention of letting his brothers live, not after his dad was gone. And that these words from his father cut to his heart. And he said, I will forgive them. I think even more likely, this letter, this message from his dad is is not authentic. It just seems very convenient that the time the brothers are most afraid, there's this message from their dead dad that comes and says the exact thing that will preserve their life. That seems convenient. And I wonder if Joseph thinks, my brothers don't trust me. Are they still lying and manipulating? I thought we weren't doing that anymore. My guess is that Joseph weeps because his brothers still don't understand. It's been 17 years of Joseph taking care of his brothers day in, day out, and they're not sure if he still loves them. Joseph loves his brothers, and they're still so consumed with their guilt and shame that they can't trust him. It is a very painful thing to be unknown by your family. Our families are supposed to be the places we are known and loved the most— And his family doesn't trust him at all. And he weeps. Verse 18, his brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We're your slaves, they said. And they're afraid. And they come and again they throw. Just like 17 years ago, they throw themselves at his feet. And they should be afraid. Remember, he is a handsome, powerful, rich person with deep wounds. By all accounts, he ought to just be a train wreck of a person. But he's not. Because God has been at work in his life the whole time. This is what Joseph said. Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I'll provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Don't be afraid. If you've studied the Bible some, you, this language is familiar to you. It might be the most common command in the Bible. And it's often when God or one of his messengers comes to give a message of hope or salvation. You don't have to be afraid. When the, when the angel appears to Mary and says, you're going to have a baby and it's going to be Jesus says, don't be afraid, Mary. You found favor with the Lord. Later, the shepherds in the field hear from the angels, don't be afraid because I've got good news. There's a savior that's been born. Then the angel at the tomb after Jesus' resurrection says, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen. Don't be afraid. He says, Am I in the place of God? I am not your judge. There is a judge. There is a God. And I may be second in power to only Pharaoh, but I am not God. A few years ago pastor Bob gave a sermon that I remember and he said everyone growing up either grows up um good and proud of it or bad and proud of it but the the pride thing is not really optional like pride is pride comes along with the territory and we have to learn to be humble and Joseph did Joseph was a good and proud kid who became a humble kind man and that's because God had been with him his whole life When Joseph was sold into slavery, the text said God was with him. When he was falsely in prison, the Lord was with him, it said, and God showed him kindness and granted him favor with the decision makers. And when Joseph stood in front of Pharaoh and Pharaoh asked him what his dreams meant, God gave him the answer. And Joseph is made instrumental in the saving of tens of thousands, if not more, lives. And even before the drought comes, Joseph saw so much of God's goodness. This is what he names his kids. Joseph named his firstborn Manasseh, which sounds like the Hebrew word for forget, and said, it is because God has made me forget all my trouble and all my father's household. The second son he named Ephraim, which sounds like the word uh, for twice fruitful, and said, it is because God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. Joseph had already seen the goodness of God and it had changed what he named his kid and it had changed him from the inside out. Hatred and pain had been replaced by awe and humility. So he says, don't be afraid. What you intended for harm, God intended for good. Jesus, or excuse me, Joseph does not deny their evil deeds. What they did was very wrong. He doesn't do what we often do and say, it's no big deal. It's no big deal. That's not true. And it's actually a way of keeping power over each other. We say, it's no big deal. You couldn't hurt me if you wanted to. Not a big deal. No, he says, you did hurt me and it was evil. What you meant for evil, God turned for good. And there is so many things we could say here about God's work in the midst of evil. Where does evil come from? How does it come to pass? Is it ever going to end? And what I want to say simply to you this morning, this is what you need to know about God, that God is always working for good. What do you need to know about God at any moment of your life is that God is working for good. We see that in Joseph We see that in his family, and we ultimately see that in Jesus. There is no greater example of God working something that was evil, intended for evil, for good, than the cross. Jesus uh, was handed over by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. This is the apostle Peter in Acts 2. He says, with the help of wicked men put to death by being nailed to on the cross. But God raised him up from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to hold him. We live in a world loved by God. No amount of evil can thwart God's ultimate plan. There are horrible things that have happened to you, they might be happening just right now. In your life, in your family, at home, in your body, evil is real. And they may have their way in the short term, but God right now is working for good. Pastor Amy said this morning, God deals with evil often not by redeeming, uh, not by preventing it, but redeeming its consequences. He doesn't take evil away, not yet, he hasn't, but he will take the consequences of evil and turn them for good. Right now, God is working for good. Most famously, Paul says it in Romans 8, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him who have been called according to his purpose. It does not mean that everything is good. If you're experiencing evil, that was not God's idea. If you are in pain or you're feeling anxious, God is working for good. And it doesn't mean it will happen today or in this moment, but at the end of our lives on earth, And ultimately, when we are with God, we will have this one refrain, and it will be, it is well with my soul. God is working for good. Joseph says again, don't be afraid, I'll take care of you and your kids. And then it says he spoke kindly to them. And in the Hebrew, kind of literally it means he spoke to their hearts. He knew their pain. The story ends by him uh, living in Egypt for the rest of his days, and he gets to see his great-great-grandchildren live. And then he says, hey, take me back to the promised land when you guys go. Whenever God comes and gets you, he will come to your aid, and he will bring you out into the land that was promised. Take me with you. Verse 26 said, Joseph died at the age of 110, and after they embalmed him, he was placed in a coffin in Egypt. Thus ends the book of Genesis. Evil did not have the last word. Not everything is all better, but the family of Abram was not forever shattered. Forgiveness is real. God was and always will be working for good. Two invitations for us this week. How do we respond to a message like that? Maybe with those opening words, family is messy. You've just been there the whole time. It's very real to you right now. How do we, how do we respond to this word about God at work and forgiveness? Well, I thought... First, let's practice forgiveness. Forgiveness is real, and it is possible to heal relationships. This week, confess your sin to God and to, to another person. Ask for forgiveness. Be as specific as possible. For example, if you ate the rest of your daughter's donut without asking her, you should apologize to her. She's not here, and she doesn't know how to use YouTube, but I probably will need to say sorry to Kenzie. That is a super small example. And you have way more important and serious things to ask for forgiveness. But there is some forgiveness that will just take years. And I don't want to zoom past that, but I think our practice of forgiveness will probably start very small. I'm sorry, I did not do what I said I would do. I did not email you back. I did not respond to your text. What is the short, um, what is the little bit of forgiveness you can do this week just to get started in the practice of forgiveness? And then the other thing this week is to pay attention to how God is at work in the world. How is God working for good right now? If you're in the midst of evil, you might ask the question, how might God redeem this? Just introduce the idea that God might do something good. I think we live in a world where evil is very obvious. Just turn on the news. Go to your favorite news website. Listen to NPR. I actually think it's harder to see God's good work in the world than it is to see the evil. As my friend said, he's so glad that he's not raising kids in this world. Have you seen it? And we can pray and we can ask God, God, would you help me see the good news in the world? But I also have this other idea. Maybe starting to see the good of God means taking in a little less evil. So maybe this week, maybe you're someone who has the news on all morning long, all day long, or you listen to NPR a couple hours a day, or you uh, go to news websites every break during your workday. None of that is bad. All those things can be good things, but it's always bad news, and the weight of it can just be crushing. We can train our brains and our hearts and our minds to see evil long before we can see the goodness of God. So an invitation this week. Pick one day this week and go... Intentionally uninformed. Don't check the news. Don't listen to the radio. Listen to songs you love to uh, listen to in the car. Um, go for a walk. Get out of that constant news cycle, which is trying to trap us in a cycle of everything's bad and it's only getting worse. Just for a day and see if God won't meet you with some, maybe who will surprise you with his goodness when we shut off the stories of evil. We pray with me. And we'll ask God together, would you help us see how you are at work for the good? Pray with me, please. God, surprise us with your goodness. Over and over and over again, would we see you at work in our lives? Would you draw our attention and our minds back to what you've done in the past that we might experience a little bit of your goodness? Would you transform us from the damage done from our dysfunctional family, our family wounds, our experiences of injustice. Would you, just like you transferred Joseph from a prideful, arrogant young man into a kind, loving, humble person, would you do that for us? We would become like you, Jesus, from the inside out. Bless us as we try to engage in asking and giving forgiveness. Give us eyes to see your goodness in the world. God, we trust you. Help us to trust you that you are always working for good. Amen.